Thank you very much, Karen. Good morning. Well, since so many of us have spent the past two days together at uh, Revive, our annual conference on the Holy Spirit, it seemed wise to me that we reflect together this morning on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. If you attended Revive, my hope is to give you a framework for some of what you've experienced and to offer some of us some steps forward, but I'm under no illusions that all of us were there. I know for whatever reason, um, many of us in our church family were, were unable to be there. I know many of you will be visiting with us, perhaps for the first time this morning. Who knows, some of you may be in church for the first time ever, period, this morning. So I want you all to know that I've got you in mind and I won't leave anyone without a bone to chew on. So as we prepare to consider the Spirit, let's pray for his help. Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, draw near to your people now. Refresh us with your life-giving presence through the washing of water with the word. For Jesus' sake, amen. As we prepare to consider the Holy Spirit, we need to be sure that we're starting from the right starting place because there are lots of tempting places to begin. Now, you might be uh, tempted. I uh, grew up Roman Catholic, and um, if you've got my kind of natural proclivities, you might choose to begin from the standing place of the church, ecclesiastical authority, which is a good thing, but it's not the starting place. Or maybe if you're coming from a secular background or from a, if I can put it this way, a quasi-Christian expression of the Christian faith, your preferred starting place might be reason. And reason is a good thing. God gave it to us. He loves reason. But it's not the starting place. Or perhaps some of us, our instinctive, intuitive starting place is experience. And as we're going to see, experience is a wonderful thing. It's a gift of the Lord. But it is not the starting place. Beloved, when we're talking about the Spirit, we need the right starting place, not the church, not reason, not experience, though all of these things are good, but they're not the starting place. So where do we start? Well, we start with the Spirit's own testimony to himself in his word, the Bible. So the question this morning is, what does the Spirit tell us about himself in the Bible? Three observations for you to consider. First, Scripture shows us who and what the Spirit is. First and foremost, it shows us that the Spirit is a person. Indeed, the third person of the triune God, the one whom the Nicene Creed calls the Lord and giver of life. But Scripture also shows us that this divine person can only be known in a way totally other from the way in which we know every other person. Think about it this way. Ordinarily, the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit with the definite article, right? He's the Holy Spirit. And apart from Dwayne the Rock Johnson, I can't think of another person whose name is a noun that involves the definite article. Don't get lost down a rabbit trail trying to think of someone else. When a person takes a noun as a name, the article, the, it usually goes, right, to show that the noun that's being adopted is actually the name. So it's not the sting, the apple, the Madonna, the prince. It's sting, apple, Madonna, prince. You get it. And yet, ordinarily, 
the scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever asked why? A key insight of the ancient church fathers was that the person of the Spirit, and this is an insight rooted in the prophet Ezekiel especially and in the Gospel of John, the Spirit is not knowable in himself. See, in the Bible, the word spirit, both in Hebrew and in Greek, is the same word for breath. And the job of breath, the church father said, following the scripture, is not to show itself of its own accord. It is to give expression to a word. That's my point. My point is that it is the eternal joy of the person of the Holy Spirit that he is not known only for his own sake but is rather known, gives himself to be known precisely as the breath that utters the eternal word made flesh in Jesus. Why does that matter? Well, it means that the Spirit delights not when we know him apart from Christ, but when knowing him, listen, when knowing him becomes the experience of knowing, seeing, and becoming like Jesus. Scottish minister Thomas Torrance put it this way. He said, the Holy Spirit is indeed personally present among us in his transparent and translucent mode of being. Which is just another way of saying that it is the joy of the Holy Spirit to be the imageless, the nameless person of the Trinity because it is his glory to show forth not his own image, but the image of Jesus who is himself the express image of the Father. That's the first thing I want to share with you. The second observation for you to consider. Scripture also shows us what the Spirit does. And it speaks of the Spirit's work in two main ways. First, in creation. So as a teenager, I don't know what you were like, but as a teenager, I had very strong moral views paired, this is a great pairing, with a really shaky understanding of God. And one day, I was pressing a moral argument in a high school geometry class without a shred of humility. And I recall explaining in my infinite wisdom how it is that God relates to creation. You see, I said, it's like this. God created all things. He made the rules. And then he flung the cosmos off into existence like a Frisbee. He wants, don't get me wrong, he wants nothing to do with us anymore. But you can be sure that if God set the Frisbee spinning clockwise, he doesn't want you living counterclockwise. Now, apart from the appalling lack of spiritual humility, you spot a problem. Theoretically, I believed in the Holy Spirit. I could say the creed. Functionally, I was a Unitarian. I had no category for the Spirit. Because I imagine that God had deistically abandoned creation to run self-sufficiently of its own accord like a Frisbee or like a train along its tracks. I believe that God was a God who created us only to abandon us. And that's a lie that I bought because I did not understand the Bible's teaching on the Holy Spirit. What the Bible says is that the Spirit upholds us in being at every instant. That this frail, contingent reality that we just assume is a given, it remains suspended at every instant of its existence over the chaos of nothingness that we read about in Genesis chapter 1. That it endures 
in existence solely because God the Holy Spirit embraces it and enfolds it in his own lordly presence. I didn't see that. And that was a pain. So the Spirit is at work in creation. But Scripture also speaks of the Spirit's work in redemption. See, if what I just said is true, then it means that what the Bible calls sin is a major problem. According to the Bible, God wants to be intimately involved in our lives. And yet, says the Bible, this same God, he's a holy God who is steadily resolved against all forms of evil. That is what scripture means by God's wrath, his settled opposition to sin in all its forms and expressions. Now, if these two things are so, that God is both intimately near and infinitely holy, well, the fact that we have rebelled against this God is very bad news indeed. Why? Well, as we just saw, we rely on the Spirit for our existence, do we not? Apart from Him, you and I, the fabric of our reality would unravel like ropes of sand. And yet the very presence, here's the catch, the very presence we need to continue in existence brings the white-hot holiness of the divine presence intimately near to each of us who are sinful people. So the question is, and this is the question of Mount Sinai, how can the Spirit dwell near to us without obliterating us? Answer? He graciously withholds himself, hides his face, lest we perish. But rather than allow us simply to unravel into nothingness, what does the Spirit do? He brings conviction of sin. He exposes the gulf between our sinfulness and his holiness. And there's more. The Spirit does not and cannot simply cool the divine nuclear reactor of righteous wrath. The Chernobyl of divine wrath could not be avoided. God's settled opposition to evil is not a bit of indigestion or a bad bit of cheese or a bubble in his gut. The God who is infinitely holy and intimately present to his offenders is by his very nature steadily resolved to oppose all evil and that is what he did when the wrath of God, his settled opposition against evil, fell for our sake on Jesus on the cross. As a result of Christ's sacrifice for sins on the cross, not only has the wrath of God been satisfied, but the Spirit who had withheld his presence from us lest we perish, who had hidden his face, he has now been poured out, we read, in the prophet Ezekiel on all Israel, in the prophet Joel on all flesh. And that is a reality that we see at work in the church. The Spirit remains the one who upholds us in being, but now, as the prophet Ezekiel says, God no longer hides his face from us. On the contrary, he has revealed his face, the prophets say, by pouring out his Spirit, who unites us to Christ, who applies to us what belongs to Christ, and who who opens our hands that were once clenched in spiritual rigor mortis 
to receive what the Lord has for us. That is the framework we need to understand the Bible's teaching on spiritual fruits and spiritual gifts. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What are these but the obedience of Jesus applied to us by the Spirit? And the gifts of the Spirit, whether the gifts that we read about in Isaiah 11 or in Romans 12 or in 1 Corinthians 12, what are these gifts but the presence of Jesus manifested by the Spirit who is translucent and transparent to him. Now to be sure, as Paul says, every gift is a manifestation of the Spirit, meaning a real sharing in his presence. It's not that each of the spiritual gifts is a sticker that the Spirit puts on us. The gifts manifest the Spirit. That is clear. What we need to remember is that when the Spirit manifests himself, it is always as the imageless, the nameless third person of the Trinity whose glory it is to mirror Jesus himself, the perfect likeness of the Father. One final observation. The Bible shows that whoever lays herself open to the Holy Spirit will experience far more richly than if she had not the treasures for which she was created and redeemed. A higher joy a deeper humility, a fuller assurance, a bolder faith. But most of all, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord. And the golden key that I want you to carry away this morning is that Christ and the Spirit never work apart. If you think you know Jesus, but in your heart of hearts, you believe him to be more pleased by your cynicism, or your sentiment, or your mental correctness than by your willingness to trust him, then you are not yet enjoying the treasures for which you were created. For you are not yet in step with the Spirit, without whom you can have no fellowship with Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll leave you with this image. When we stand before a mirror, we see our reflection, don't we? When the Spirit stands before a mirror, the image peering back is the face of Jesus. The world sees nothing. The world sees only an empty glass because the world sees only according to the flesh and as Jesus says, the flesh is no help at all. As Paul puts it, spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. But... When the church stands before the mirror, the case is different by far, for the Spirit has been lavished upon us. And therefore, what we see when we look into the mirror is not an empty glass. It is not even, thanks be to God, our own reflection. It is the face of the imageless Spirit peering back at us in the eyes of Jesus. When the church looks into the mirror, and Jesus looks back, that is the Holy Spirit. So beloved, do you want a higher joy? Do you want a deeper humility? Do you want a fuller assurance? Do you want a bolder faith? Then pray earnestly for the Spirit that you may have fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.